Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with Timothy Stewart Winter, an assistant professor of history and gender studies at Rutgers University. His book, Queer Clout, Chicago and the Rise of Gay Politics, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press, is a topic of this show. Stewart Winter traces the rise of gay urban politics from the silence of the closet in the 1950s the halls of power in the 1980s. The city of Chicago, with its machine politics and Richard Day Daly's breadwinner liberalism, reflects a national development of gay and lesbian rights. In post-war America, homosexuals flocked to urban centers seeking anonymity, forming gay enclaves, and creating a system of mutual aid. Regarded as deviants and associated with crime and political subversion, they were under constant threat of harassment by police. Exposure meant the loss of jobs, family rejection, and vulnerability to extortion and blackmail. In the 1950s, a limited homophile movement formed to educate and advocate for the decriminalization of same-sex intimacy. After Stonewall in 1969, gay pride parades and the process of coming out fueled gay liberation. An ethnic group strategy of a self-identified gay community found common cause with the black civil rights movement. Black politicians courted the gay vote in a progressive coalition. The passing of gay rights ordinances and the election of the first black mayor, Harold Washington, in 1983 cemented the inclusion of gays in Chicago politics. Yet the gay community suffered divisions of gender, economic class, and race. Lesbian women, emerging from the ranks of radical feminism, experienced greater job and pay discrimination due to traditional gender expectations. Blacks suffered multiple forms of discrimination escaped by white males. The devastation of the AIDS crisis of the 1980 accelerated the professionalization of gay advocacy and fundraising. By 1990, gay politics resembled the politics of previous white ethnic groups, and white gay men became respected symbols of economic and social privilege. Here is my conversation with Timothy Stewart Winter. Now let me introduce you to the author, Timothy Stewart Winter. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Your book traces the transformation of a political culture, one that reaches beyond Chicago. But before we get into the book, tell us a little about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Queer Clout. I grew up in the Midwest, and uh, I went to graduate school at the University of Chicago. I actually almost wrote my dissertation about San Francisco, and I also began graduate school thinking that I would do a kind of a social history, a history of the structure of everyday life. I think in the course of the 2000s, especially with the re-election of George W. Bush as president, I was kind of pushed towards political history, uh, pushed and also pulled because political history, I think, has become a more 
lively and, and sort of open-ended subfield. Um, and so I was drawn towards po- po- political culture and towards Chicago uh, at the same time. Okay, now the, the, your book starts really in the post-war era, 1950s, and you describe Chicago, the politics of Chicago, uh, before we even start talking about gay politics, we're talking about what was the what was the political situation in Chicago in the 1950s. I sometimes, you know, working on late 20th century Chicago, the arc is from daily to daily, uh, and so I, you know, I sometimes felt like I'm literally studying patriarchy. Right, uh, the, the the political culture of Chicago is quite conservative. It is. Um, Industrial, uh, although deindustrialization has begun, but it's it's got a very kind of um, uh, it's it's the cosmopolitan center of the Midwest, which is not a particularly cosmopolitan region, and so it's it's somewhat inward looking. Um, it hasn't it, it it's got a, a big art scene, but not as big as L.A. or New York or San Francisco. Um, and it's also very Catholic and it's, it's governed by this kind of, this white ethnic, um, nationalist politics, right? And Chicago's known for neighborhoods, for its Polish neighborhood, uh, neighborhoods, Italian neighborhoods and so on. Um, but, but th- that kind of national boundaries between neighborhoods are giving way to a very stark racial divide. And so the city has become, by the 1950s, increasingly just bitterly divided between black and white. Um, and and that's, that sort of sets the stage um, for, the late, for the late 50s. Where we're made book. Now, you pick Chicago. You're doing your study in Chicago. But, of course, this book has implications for national gay politics. It's not just about Chicago. Right. Uh, so I thought that was very interesting. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I think one of the myths, one of, one, one of the funny things about doing gay political history is almost everything that we know, almost almost all of the scholarship that's been published has been about New York or San Francisco. And those are actually not typical of life in other cities, places like, you know, Chicago is probably the biggest city in the country that isn't known as a gay city. Um, and, and in that sense, it's more typical of what's going on in Atlanta or Dallas or Boise, Idaho, or other cities where people sort of migrate, come because they know that the city is a place where you can be out or you can be who you are. Um, but, but, it's not a kind of national gay mecca. Um, and so things happen later in Chicago than in New York and San Francisco. And so Chicago's story is actually more typical of the United States, more more like what gay political culture looks like everywhere. Now, one of the things that you describe about the Chicago political scene and Daly's politics, you describe it as breadwinner breadwinter liberalism. Yes, yes. Talk about that a little bit. Sure. And that, that term comes from Robert Self, from his book, All in the Family. Um, I found it a very useful term because it captures the, the, the New Deal assumption of a family wage, right? The Daly was, was, was actually a key figure in this 
coalition, Democratic Party coalition between um, New Deal liberals in Washington and big city mayors for whom the New Deal was a source of funds um, and reciprocally a source of, of votes. They could give out patronage jobs that were ultimately kind of uh, the, the, the flow was, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Enabled by the New Deal. And so it was liberal, but it was also assum- based on this assumption that everyone was in a traditional heterosexual household. With children, and the father was working, and the woman was at home. and Exactly, exactly. Okay. And so gay and lesbian people, in different ways, like gender shapes the story, but gay and lesbian people are outside of this political structure. Now, one thing that you talk about uh, is how um, homosexuals from all over rural areas and small towns flock to the large cities uh, for a variety of reasons. And and this created these neighborhoods or these sectors of of the city that were highly populated by gay people who had come there to kind of get away from small town America and whatever that meant to them. Can you talk a little bit about the motivations to going to the city and how these communities started to form and where they started to form? Sure, absolutely. So the, you know, there's a comedy troupe called Second City that was founded in the late 50s in the Old Town neighborhood, which is kind of uh, north of downtown in Chicago, um, along the lakefront. Chicago is built along uh, Lake Michigan, which is sort of a big structuring feature of the landscape. And there's, there's this joke that second city incorporated into their routine in the early sixties about a a kid from downstate Illinois who moves to Chicago and his family comes to visit him. He's moved there because he's gay and he knows that, you know, this is a place he can be gay. And he tries to drop hints to his family about his gay life in the big city. They don't pick up on the hints and much comedy ensues. So even as early as 1963, the notion that the city and especially the kind of bohemian artistic areas of the city were places where gay people gathered was a a widely circulating notion. Um, There was anonymity in the city, right? Cities were always queer meccas. Um, We know from George Chauncey's work that New York had had visible gay um, communities as early as the end of the 19th century, but cities become gayer in the post-war era. And I think gay migration to cities as it kind of picked up over the course of the um, 50s and 60s uh, started to shape urban liberalism, and especially in the 70s and 80s. And that's sort of part of the arc that I want to, one of the arguments I want to make is that the history of liberalism needs to take into account the concentration of gay people and others, you know, sort of non-conforming populations in, in big cities. Well, it's interesting about uh, this migration is people are moving to the city in order to sort of get lost in a city where they can't be found and find yes. a community. But at the same time, 
because there's so many of them and they're congregating, they're becoming more visible. And then there's the uh, right. the, the the push against them. You know, uh, you're talk you talk a lot about the negative aspects of being gay in Chicago, yes, and being visibly gay, which they're becoming more visible because there's more of them and they're congregating. Um, That's right. Police harassment, organized crime, and I mean, can you talk about some of the? There, it's not a a wonderful place all around here where you're getting away from the small town and mom and dad and nobody's going to find you because you're really kind of got a, a mark on your back. Totally. Totally. And this, there, the, one of the things that surprised me is that police harassment actually got more severe in the 1960s than it had been in the 1950s. Um, partly out of a kind of backlash against visibility for politicians, for prosecutors, um, and for crime reporters, the newspaper industry. Newspapers are very, uh, it's a very competitive industry. Chicago has four or five daily papers in the 60s, and stories about raids on gay bars, vice dens, sold papers, and they're and and because gay life was vulnerable to these raids, uh, organized crime syndicates, as they were they were sort of called, um, had a lot of control over queer nightlife um, and skimmed payoffs from the patrons of gay establishments. So one of the things we forget is that the risk of being arrested was a very powerful deterrent for people. It kept people from associating with other gay people. The, the quintessential way you could be punished for being gay in the 50s and 60s was being arrested. And even people who never were arrested were afraid of being arrested and afraid that if they associated with this community, you know, unless they did it in ha- apartment parties or house parties, you could face this risk of arrest. Now, the and, and then losing your job or family. Right. And, and, and what, what were the laws that were driving these, you know, police uh, actions? What, what were the laws on the books? So the, there was always uh, disorderly conduct, right, the ultimate catch-all charge, um, or being an inmate of a disorderly house, as it was called. There were um, laws that were used in gay bar raids, included laws against lewd conduct, um, women were most often charged with violating municipal laws that banned wearing the clothing of the other sex in public. I know this sounds totally nuts, but, uh, you know, in raids on lesbian bars or just when they were harassed by cops on the street, lesbians would be asked to prove that they were wearing women's underwear, um, right? An incredibly intimate kind of, um, of of state violence. Sounds like our bathroom wars today. It, you know, I, 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 I can't help thinking in some ways we've been here before. Um, and and it, it scares me, you know. I, I, people, people thought this was reasonable. Um, it just went without saying that this was was what the police did, what, what state um, control of the streets, keeping the streets clean and orderly, should look like. Now, 
homosexuals were at this point um, considered deviants. Yes. Uh, associated with crime, political subversion, yep. possibly communism, uh, undermining the breadwinner winter, uh, liberalism, undermining the family, which was the kind of the base for the political machine of Chicago. Yes. Um, so if you were exposed by through because you were arrested and your name appears in the paper or somewhere, um, there was a lot to lose. That's right. You could be fired. That was the economic. Um, yes. The economic repercussions of being exposed as gay were severe. You know, lesbians and gay men were seen as dangerous for different reasons. Gay men were likelier to be seen as threats to other people's children Lesbians often, if they were living, if they had been married, lesbians were likelier to have kids and to have been married before um, because women in the 50s were pressured to marry at a very young age. And so they were likelier to be punished by having their kids taken away from them. Um, so the, the price you could pay was incredibly high. Um, especially if you were um, a teacher or if you worked in um, the civil service government, actually, you know, the federal government kind of set the tone for excluding gay people from the workplace as a, as a normative practice. Um, and that began in the fifties, right? That, that was not federal policy before that. Okay. Now you've got this, uh, this uh, community that is sort of coming into being, and there's a lot of uh, mutual aid. They're helping each other uh, because right. of the harassment that's happening from the police. There are also there's uh, homophile uh, organizations that yep. are that are emerging, and they're very conservative, actually. The homophile organizations of what they're actually trying to accomplish. Yes. Well, I don't know if I would say that they're. And for the they time, they were they were they were exactly. Cons- but for now, now we think of them as being very conservative. That's right. That's Education right. and trying to change a few laws. Exactly, and and you know making the case that gay people are not dangerous, <laughs> that they're um, you know, w- which was an incredibly uphill battle, and you know one of the funny things about studying the homophile movement is these organizations, which were teeny tiny until the mid sixties required everyone to use a fake name because if you were associated with, you know, the, the, the punishment, as I've mentioned of being exposed as gay was so severe. And so it, it can become tricky um, when you're studying an organization to remember, you know, what's the, who's this person's real name and, and, their gay correspondence is usually totally separated from their, the rest of their life. And so you see in the archive reproduced the kind of stark divisions that gay people have to maintain between their gay life and their work and family. Um, it's, it's so, so that's 
part of what people start fighting back against. So, yeah, so they're living a double life very much. A level, uh, yeah. Okay, so in 1961, you have the decriminalization of, of, of same-sex sex uh, intimacy in Illinois. Now, we would think this would be a huge victory. Right. And and it, what's interesting, in, in a way it is, in a way it isn't. Uh, can you talk about that the, the, that law? What was the law that actually was put on the books, and how did it change uh, things for gay people? This was a very puzzling thing. Um, so Illinois was the first state to remove its um, criminal statute that said um, what what was called the crime against nature. Um, or sodomy was illegal. Sodomy laws were on the books in every state before uh, 1961. And in Illinois, it was repealed not as part of a package of criminal law reforms that sort of legal liberals had advocated and which they they um, slipped it in along with a bunch of other of other things. The argument was having a crime that it's likely no one has witnessed will lead to blackmail, which is true. Um, people did get blackmailed. Or extortion. Exactly. Exactly. And, and cops would also you know, people as an easy way to whip off the public. So you have this repeal, but no one really knows about it until a couple years after it happens. And by the late 60s, in Chicago, people start to realize, ironically, that gay life has gotten more dangerous. And the reason is, when gay people are harassed, they're not charged with sodomy. They're charged with disorderly conduct. They're charged with um, lewd conduct or with, uh, with not wearing the right clothing, as we've discussed. And... The, the criminal, so the state criminal law actually matters less than the liquor regulatory apparatus, which has tightened at the very same moment that this sodomy law has been repealed. Um, so after prohibition, liquor laws are regulated at the state level, and Illinois makes it easier for Mayor Daly to shut down a gay bar if there's been a raid. Um, I, I call it a padlock law. Um, and, and that actually has a much bigger effect. That, that happens also in 61. Um, that has a bigger effect on gay life than the sodomy law repeal, ironically. Okay, so during this uh, period of repression, which is gets worse in the 1960s, the homophile uh, movement sort of coalesces. Yes. Is Talk about that, how this this comes about, and what are the contours of this movement? Who's involved? There so, you talk about several organizations, uh, and they begin to change their approach to the political right. machine. Right. In the course of the 60s, they start to, as the police start shutting down gay bars and keeping them closed, um, and as the police actually are beginning very early to kind of militarize, Chicago has a very, uh, has like LA and other cities, has a new police chief in the 60s who wants to do what he calls preventive policing. Um, basically, you know, arrest people before they've committed a crime rather than 
after. Um, and so the police get more aggressive and in the city as a whole, the African American civil rights movement begins to take off and to challenge locally. They're challenging school segregation. They're challenging housing segregation, but they're also focused on police brutality. Um, and the homophile movement after 1963, when, when both the Southern, uh, fight, uh, you know, the Selma March police harassment of black people becomes a nationally visible issue, um, that fight against police brutality gets picked up both, um, by black and increasingly by gay activists in the, in the second half of the 60s. So you begin to see this black gay coalition sort of taking shape. Yes. It's, really- it's kind of a problematic, complex coalition. It's not simplistic. That's right. But the pr- police brutality seems to be the, the, the centerpiece of how they can come together. They're both That's experiencing uh, harassment. And one, that's right. That's exactly right. And, and I would say that the, in terms of in electoral politics, they don't really work together until after 1968, 69. Um, but the issue starts to push gay people toward a liberal stance, toward the gay activists, towards a, a, a critique of the police and toward, um, looking for strategies for challenging the police, whether it's litigation, whether it's going to journalists and trying to drum up their interest in police harassment. Um, or, but you know, after the, after 1968, the democratic convention in 68, when all the gay bars, not sorry, the two biggest gay bars in Chicago are raided and shut down right before the convention, gay activists actually hold a press conference to criticize this. Um, which they've never done before. And they circulate a petition asking people to, asking the the public, the general public, especially the kind of new left anti-war activists who are in Chicago for the convention to um, join them in protesting this police harassment. Yeah, so the, the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago and the 1969 Stonewall Rebellion these mm-hmm. two events sort of are turning points um, in what had been the homophile movement and sort of becomes more radicalized, and you've got gay, the emergence of gay liberation. Exactly, exactly. And in Chicago, I would add a third event, which is the police killing of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark at, in December of 1969, who are Illinois Black Panther leaders who are basically assassinated by the police. Um, which, and, and, you know, they're sleeping in their beds when this happens. And that helps push um, black and white liberals and radicals in Chicago into a coalition to fight police harassment and police spying and to, and to basically to say, you know, this is totally out of hand. Um, and so they start getting some traction with journalists. What, one of the arguments if I can sort of shift another way I could answer the question is the gay movement, both before and after some is that this gay liberation moment leads to rapid growth in the movement, but both before and after, you know, in the sixties and then in the seventies, 
police harassment is the major focus of the movement. And so that's, that's one thing that I think comes into focus when you look at one city in a way that it doesn't in kind of national level studies. Yeah, there's so much of the police in your book at this point that yeah. it's not really about changing the laws and God forbid, you know, same sex marriage. I mean, that was almost probably outside the imagination at that time. It, that it was this police uh, harassment that yes. if the police had not been aggressive, it could have changed the whole trajectory of the movement, it seems. That's right. That's right. And I also think it's important, you know, in New York and San Francisco, police raids on queer establishments became much less common earlier than, than in Chicago. So by the early 70s, you, you still have really, actually in Chicago, police raids don't really end until the 80s. And we've gotten a little bit of a warped picture of the gay movement because we've focused so much on New York and San Francisco that we tend to assume that the, the reduction in policing that happened earlier there also happened everywhere else. When really the police stayed, you know, that was the issue throughout the 70s, even as, you know, Anita Bryant comes along in 77 um, and, and, and launches this crusade, Save Our Children. But the police are sort of, are, are still the big, just a huge part of the picture. So now we get into the 70s, that they're at this cusp of 69-70, and we see the invention of the, the Gay Pride Parade. Yes. Um, and this was not just merely entertainment or, or a way to provoke anything. It, it, was pol- it was politically significant. Can you talk about what was politically significant about Gay Pride Parade? Absolutely. So gay pride parades were, at the time, it's hard to imagine for my students today just how um, bold an action it was to, you know, go into the street and carry a sign saying, um, we are the dykes your mother warned you about, or better blatant than latent or, you know, or just gay power, right? Um, that took an incredible amount of guts and it went against, it was, a, it was a way of fighting back against invisibility more than anything, of making people visible in the urban landscape. It, it also borrows um, from the the tradition of other communities holding parades in cities. So, you know, you would have like Italian parades in Italian neighborhoods and Polish parades in Polish neighborhoods in the first half of the 20th century. There's a funny way that even as that white ethnic politics that's organized around national identities is going away in the city, gay politics in many ways resembles it. Um, it's kind of like a new white ethnic politics in a certain sense. And also the, the, the gay pride uh, parades also functioned in a way of the coming, uh, coming out. People are coming out as gay people. They're saying it publicly. 
I'm gay. I'm here. You can see me. Uh, and, uh, but I was going to ask you about coming out at this point. Uh, here we're talking about a mostly white male gay, uh, person. Mm-hmm. Isn't there a certain amount of privilege that has, you have to have in order to come out? Yes. Uh, that's right. That's right. Um, because you know, if you're, you got to have some social power that lets you sort of escape maybe, um, some of the harshest elements of coming out. That's right. I think in any social movement, usually it's the least marginalized of the marginalized who often um, acquire political power first. <laughs> um, right. It's in Chicago, it's middle class blacks who are the first to win access to win clout. It's it's also for reasons that have to do with the Catholic nature of machines, it's the small group of blacks who are Catholic. In Chicago, um, you know, the other thing is gay liberation is happening, but so is the black power movement. So is women's liberation. And if you, you are marginalized in multiple ways by your race and your gender, as well as your homosexuality, you might be more drawn to one of those other movements than to the gay movement. Um, and so the, the, the gay movement is um, disproportionately attracts people who are white men. There's also a, there's also a, a way that um, white men are kind of able to plug into the machine politics more easily than lesbians are. So, uh, and this creates tensions between gay men and lesbians uh, in the 70s. Um, we forget how incredibly male politics is, right? At precinct captains. I interviewed one, one gay bar owner who was the first openly gay precinct captain in Mayor Daly's, old Mayor Daly's machine. And I suddenly asked him, you know, were there women precinct captains? And he said... In all his years, you know, there would be gatherings of the thousands of precinct captains from all over the city. And this is the 70s. He said he doesn't remember a single woman ever. Um, Chicago had no women on the city council before 1971. Um, still doesn't have that many. So uh, I, I think I'm getting a little bit away from your, your question, but um, the the way that Gender and race intersect with the political empowerment is... Oh, one other thing. Uh, coming out often meant being rejected by your family or turning away from your family or moving away from your family. And that's something that I think is not as appealing necessarily for queer people of color um, at this moment because families are so so important as a kind of protecting you from the larger racism. And also talking about the black church also was very important. So it'd be harder. Exactly. There, you know, these are institutions that, that, um, that people have grown up in and that turning your, your, I mean, for white people as well as people of color, but there's a, there, the, the price of giving up family ties is different. That calculation is different. Now, so not, here's the 1970s. You've got great gay pride. People are coming out. 
And now you have multiple community groups, gay, gay-based gay groups that are forming in, in the gay community is becoming very vital. Uh, you could actually live in, an, in an, a gay neighborhood and have your whole life there. You could have all the services, social networks, jobs, everything you needed without ever having to step out into the larger society. Right. Okay. So, right. yeah. Right. And, uh, but we're still having, you still have widespread job discrimination. You still have police harassment. And gays begin to take up the political features of ethnic, other ethnic groups, which we've, you've kind of touched on. How, how effective was this, Ian, as a political strategy? You know, in, it's, it's so funny to look back in retrospect and say, could it have happened a different way? And as a historian, we're very kind of allergic to counterfactuals um, and to predicting the future. Nonetheless, we also implicitly pose counterfactuals. And I think the did gay politics have to be organized around neighborhoods, which end up... Um, you know, because the city is so segregated, um, the parts of the city that become associated with gay people in a city like Chicago are also on the white side of town. And I think the, there, there's incredible effectiveness to, um, ending police raids on gay bars, um, electing our own, electing gay people to city council, right? Which becomes a kind of, uh, preoccupation of gay people as it's been for many minority groups um, and to uh, holding these, you know, parades through city streets in our neighborhood. Um, but there's also, you can't separate that story from the larger fact that the city is becoming more unequal by the late 20th century. It's, it, it's, becoming no less racially segregated and if not more racially segregated. And you, you can't separate that process from the, the rise of these gayborhoods. Um, okay. So okay. It's, it's complicated. Yeah, <laughs> it's it is a, complicated. A, um, so far we've pretty much are talking about white male, uh, gay men. And, um, you had a whole chapter, which I thought was very interesting, about lesbian organizing that came out of the women's liberation, anti-war, and counterculture, and that women had a distinct economic disadvantages. And how how was lesbian culture different from the gay male culture? There was there were cultural differences of how they thought of their homosexuality and how they wanted to live it out. Particularly one that was interesting was that the lesbian women were not as interested in going to gay bars to get, you know, bar life. That was just not as attractive to them that it was to the men. That's right. There's, and they're also, they're, they're not as interested in city council. They're, they're, they're more radical. I would say that. In which way? In which way are they more radical? They're more, um, they're more likely to criticize capitalism, um, to criticize, to, to be, um, anti-war, to, to say that they want a political revolution. The, the, the center of gravity in 
lesbian politics is to the left of the center of gravity in gay male politics. Um, and lesbian politics is also much more experimental you see, and, and alternative, I guess I would say. You, you see things like coffee houses playing a, an important role, um, artistic cultural production is, is central to, um, women's organizing. And, and in Chicago, a lot of lesbian organizing in the seventies actually happens through the Chicago women's liberation, Union, which is a socialist kind of umbrella, uh, organization that, that pulls together lots of different women's liberationists. And while uh, males were, gay men were more interested in inclusion or or just even being left alone, it seemed like uh, some of the lesbian organizing that you talk about were, they were very interested in separating. Uh, There were some separatist strains within lesbianism. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, because even if it's a, ma- a gay man, it's still patriarchy. That's right. And men still, you know, the, the, the wage gap between men and women is so big. And, and because, you know, the, the bread, breadwinner liberal, liberalism is in some ways is alive and well today, of course, with, with unequal pay between men and women. But in the 70s, it was even more overt than today. And so lesbianism often meant living without men. Right. And part of it was also on the job, not only were women paid less, but they also had to deal with sexual harassment and uh, sexual advances that they did not want, did not welcome, not only because they they were uncomfortable as women, but also because they were lesbian women and they didn't want this male attention, which was ex- is expected that they would. What exactly. is wrong was, with you? What kind of woman are you if you're not re- responding? So uh, women so, were likely to experience uh, sexual harassment. Especially in kind of, um, well, in, in all kinds of jobs, but many so-called pink collar, many of the jobs that were open to women um, were jobs where they experienced a great deal of sexual harassment. Right? Um, and, and yes, and men expected it. Um, and so for lesbians, that was often a bigger issue than their wanting to elect a gay person to the city council or something like that. Right. So in 1983, you ha- we have the uh, the election of the first black ma- uh, mayor of a major city, uh, Harold Washington, which was a watershed event for gay politics. Can you talk about Harold Washington, his place in this gay history, which is really, uh, you know... This is where I thought was very interesting in your book is how you uh, kind of have uh, the black politics and gay politics sort of dancing with each other. Uh, and, you know, and, and that ex- and I was sort of not uh, expecting that much interaction for, for reasons that of what we think about black, the black community being wanting respectability, middle class respectability, which should not include homosexuality. Um, yep. And also the conservatism of so many black churches. So, but now you've got this major political figure in Chicago who is black, who is actually inc- including black people. 
Can you talk? Well, he actually had to. He actually uh, went after the gay vote. Right, right. So he's not actually the first black mayor of a big city. There are others. Oh, okay. Um, before him, Marion Barry in Washington D.C. Okay, and, okay. Um, but but he's the he's uh, it's a huge win when he's elected, um, and it represents the rise of authentic black political power in urban America. Which, which is partly the result of white flight, right? There's, and there's a kind of argument among urban historians about the sort of so-called hollow prize where blacks inherit cities at the same time that cities have lost jobs and capital and so on. And all of that's, so that's one piece. Another piece, yes, yeah, we hear a lot about straight black homophobia and white gay racism today. And those are both very present throughout the story that I tell, but they're never the whole story. They're, they, they're not the complete picture of how these two movements of people who are concentrated in the city, of how those two movements intersect. And for Harold Washington, he sees white, gays and lesbians as white people who might be persuaded to vote for him based on his support for gay rights. Um, and so he makes in a lot of ways, a political calculation. He, he's if the city is still, it's, it's, there aren't enough African-American votes for him to win without some white votes. Most white people vote against him. It's a very, very bitter, um, moment of incredible white backlash against having a black mayor, but he needs some white liberals to take his side. And this is a, he sees this as a constituency that he can, um, you know, pull over to his side in this fight in city council. So he, he, when he's running for mayor in 83, he goes to gay, a gay democratic party organization and says, you know, I know that your community has faced police brutality. And he, when he's in office, he creates the mayor, what's called the mayor's committee on gay and lesbian issues, which, which is the first time that gay people are kind of invited in to city hall. Um, and there are also certain city council races that, where he knows Chicago has very small council wards. Um, I guess I'm getting into the weeds here, but that both encourages corruption and also um, means that just a few votes can make a very big difference in a, in a city council race. And so gay people start to borrow strategies like voter registration from the Harold Washington campaign, um, which, which had been, he, he had said, to, to black activists, I'll run for mayor if you register X number of new voters. And that discovery that there were tons of, you know, black people who were eligible to vote but didn't vote, uh, getting them registered and getting, turning them out was crucial to Washington's strategy. And then that's what gay people pick up on when they're trying to push the city council to, to pass a gay rights bill. Now, part of this politics going on is also the, the religious communities are mobilizing against the gay political gains. You've got a huge Catholic population in Chicago. 
That's right. And you've got the African American, some of the African American churches are speaking up about what's going on with this. Yes. I think a lot of times, you know, especially since the whole, the, the convergence between Prop 8 and Barack Obama's election, I think Americans like to portray homophobia in blackface, if you will, uh, and to, you know, and, and pitting black and gay communities against one another has been a strategy of religious conservatives in the U.S. that's been effective. Um, what's interesting in, about black religious politics in Chicago is that it's actually incredibly diverse. You have, you have black conservative pastors who preach, um, against gay people for sure. You also have people like the Reverend Willie Barrow, who, um, you know, who is a, uh, feminist, womanist, black pastor at the Vernon Park Church of God. You know, she's, she has a gay son who's died of AIDS and she testifies before the city council and says, this is a civil rights issue, which, which gives some black aldermen cover to, to vote for gay rights. The other thing is that the Catholic archdiocese is very powerful. You know, we don't tend to think of that as of, of, of the, the Catholic church as white, but, and it's not exclusively white and it's, it's certainly increasingly Latino. And there have always been a kind of uh, a sliver of black Catholics in Chicago politics, but the white aldermen are the ones who more than half the city council is, is, white Catholics in the 1980s. And they are very responsive when the archdiocese says, you know, nope, cannot do this gay rights thing. Um, we don't tend to think of that as white homophobia. Um, and, and so I try to complicate the narrative we have about religion and to recognize that it's a moving target. It's, you know, the, the politics really, really change over the course of the period I'm looking at. Um, and also, we're, we're not talking about marriage, which I think is another... Right, another thing <laughs> altogether. Uh, all right, so you've got Harold Washington as the mayor. It looks like everything's going on the upswing here for <laughs> politics, okay? Everything's going up. I mean, it's really happening. Well, then you get hit with the AIDS, the AIDS crisis. Yes. which really changes gay politics and really does several things, some good things, but also re- de- uh, it reveals some of the deep divisions within the gay community, uh, class issues, race issues, pr- uh, issues of privilege and who has access, and at the same time that the public is scared of, the, of disease and they lo- lose like 15,000, I think you say 15,000 um, gay people die of AIDS in Chicago. during a a certain period of time. So it's devastating. But it also, some tell me, talk about uh, the change in gay politics because of AIDS. AIDS is, well, there are a lot of different ways to think about it. We associate the AIDS crisis 
again with New York and San Francisco, and and that's and rightly, um, those cities were the first and hardest hit, um, and they also had the most militant response. We, Act Up was founded in in New York, um, and San Francisco pioneers ways of addressing. Um, of offering community-based, San Francisco is sort of the model uh, the, of, of a good municipal response to AIDS. In Chicago, first of all, the numbers pick up later. The, the, the impact is felt a little bit later, and it is constantly shaped by the, the fact that there's not just one way you get HIV, um, but there are two common ways, um, through IV drug use and through sexual contact are the most common sort of risk behaviors. And there's this assumption, this kind of working assumption that a lot of people make that white people with AIDS are gay and black people with AIDS are drug users. And this, this kind of great uh, conflation of race with risk group um, you know, there's, there's a reality behind it, but, um, okay. I'm at great pains to underline, you know, that we need to recognize these are, that this is a myth and that this is a myth with a lot of power. And it, it you know, the other thing is that the, the city is so divided. White neighborhoods have so much better health care access than black neighborhoods and aid services because the government doesn't do its job. People have to create new agencies and they have to raise money for them to provide those services and where those agencies will be located in the city ends up being very consequential and also, you know, bitterly the, the subject of bitter arguments and, conflict that are that's very real and kind of awful <laughs> i mean this is this is a very depressing uh chapter in the book in some ways i think it's it's the it was the chapter that was hardest to get right and that i revised the most um but i'm i'm proud of what i did i think that um i think that i've managed to tell a story about aids that recognizes that it's about gay political history, but it's also about all these other things. Yeah, yeah, you talk about race, and you talk also about lesbians. Their AIDS was much lower there in that community, and how lesbians and gay people came together with this uh, AIDS crisis. You talk about the professionalization of gay politics, fundraising, lobbying, getting elected. There's a radicalization also that's happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, So... more people coming out, in some cases forced out by getting sick. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's, there's, what's funny is that lesbians, although they're not, they're, lesbians and gay men come together in a lot of ways in the 80s, um, which I think speaks to the heroism of many lesbians who, um, stepped up and ran organizations when gay men couldn't and, and also created AIDS service organizations. Um, 
to provide care um, for their gay brothers. So there's a, there's a lot of moving parts and um, and looking at municipal government is crucial. So now I'm thinking, okay, at this point, um, then you begin to see what you're talking about being gay or queer clout, gays gain a lot of political clout just because they're better organized, they've got better fundraising, they're lobbying, they're getting elected. But when does being gay lose its sort of political power for other interests? In other words, if, you know, if um, I've been advocating for all these gay-related issues and I accomplish a great deal, then I begin to think about my other interest, my economic interest. You know, and then how does that begin to splinter the, the gay community even more? Because you'd say that in the end, it's the white male uh, who be, uh, gays who become sort of symbols of prestige and economic power. You have a whole chapter calling, talking about gay economic muscles in the 1990. So when does economics become more important to me as a gay person than it does than being gay and gay issues. Right. I think, I don't think it, I mean, there's never a complete shift. What I, what I think one way to think about it is the gay movement is, um, sorry. (laughs) The gay Politicians who are elected to city council, um, there are there. The first three are all men. They're not politically progressive, especially except when it comes to AIDS policy. They're um, they 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 are interested in promoting real estate development in their wards, just like lots of other aldermen are. Um, they're they're white. <laughs> Um, and they are, well, Chicago's first lesbian alderman, um, was literally inherited her father's city council seat, right? This is not the ultra, the radical politics that you, that we thought we were going to get in the seventies. This is, this is, you know, and again, it's Chicago, it's so Chicago. Um, I think, um, the fight for access is a fight that some people are much more able to win than other people are. So, and and police harassment of predominantly white gay establishments drops off. And so the movement turns away from criticizing the police. And yet trans women of color are still facing endemic police harassment which, which the gay movement is not focused on, um, the, the, the sort of white-led gay movement, at least. Uh, okay. I, I, I want to go into a little different direction. You don't really talk about this in your book, but I do have this question. that I, sure. With the legalization of same-sex marriage, does, mm-hmm. does gay politics still have a future as gay politics? Or are gay people join, now joining other political interest groups that may pursue other interests they have as individuals. And is gay culture, as a distinct from mainstream culture, still necessary, viable? 
Wow. <laughs> those are both. Those and they're those really big, big. And, and we only have a few minutes left. But sure. uh, it, it seems like um, where does gay politics go from here? So I think we more people are coming out than ever before. Actually, so I wouldn't say, I don't think gay politics is going to go away. I don't think gay activism is going to go away. Um, in fact, the movement is, it, it has certainly lost a, the, the, the fact that this marriage fight took more and more of the movement's energy and resources and then was victorious definitely creates a kind of tricky moment for the movement. Um, especially as people who do have resources, you know, foundation giving to, to gay causes has dropped off since the Obergefell decision last summer. Um, and there's this, there's a risk that we'll think that the fight is won. But I also think there's incredibly vibrant new kinds of organizing. So in a city like Chicago, you have today, you have, think about gay pride in Chicago, something like half a million people come from all over the Midwest to go to pride every June. And it's very commercialized. It's very, um, it's very important to people who are, don't have other times of the year that they get to be around a lot of other gay people, but, but it's also, very commercialized, but you also have things like the Dyke March, <clears throat> which is, which is a newer development in the last, oh, 15 years or so. You have the emergence of black pride events and, uh, drag marches in cities that are very small, do it yourself, grassroots, radical mobilizations. And in a lot of ways, those those things, dyke marches, are look much more like what uh, gay liberation marches or parades looked like in the 70s than, than the mainstream gay pride does. So I think, I, I, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm kind of refusing to answer your question. That's okay, it's all right. I just, had to, I just wanted to bring that up because I just was wondering. Yeah, no, I think it's a very interesting question what happens when outsiders when some who've been on the outside become insiders right um, and uh that's definitely the question that i you know that that still i don't know the answer to right i mean i am a historian we're, we're very backward looking um but that's the arc that I'm telling over the course of 60 years and, and gay people really won power first in city hall and they still are most powerful in city hall, right? In Charlotte, North Carolina being a perfect example, it's, it's municipal politics that is pushing for transgender rights that the state government you know, there has, um, has recently shown demonstrated backlash to. Okay. Uh, thank you, Tim. We're out of time. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. I welcome your comments, and you can contact me through my website, www.lillianbarger.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger. Thank you so much.